Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today I have a guest who is not only an investor at SeedCamp, but also an accomplished entrepreneur and philanthropist, Amy Nayakas. Thanks well, for being here. Well done on the name too. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. It is hard to do sometimes. So what did you study mm -hmm. and what was your first job? Oh. Well, I um, I went to Dickinson having kind of a, you know, as much as you can have at 18, a lifelong desire to study something in the global realm, international. I always anticipated going into um, foreign service. So I thought I'd go down the State Department or ambassadorial route. Um, so I studied international uh, affairs and, and economics um, with a concentration on sub-Saharan Africa and French. So... Uh, probably as far away from what is what I'm doing now as could possibly be the case. Um, and, and it was a, it's a great experience. And I think what happened at Dickinson that opened my mind up to kind of the future of my life was really uh, a wonderful opportunity to go uh, and study abroad in, in Cameroon, um, Western Central Africa, and to do it in a way that was quite entrepreneurial in nature. I was setting up a program for my, my university, the first time um, that they'd had a program in the area and our, our strategy was to send a student off and see if we couldn't put together a proper foreign abroad program, <laughs> study foreign abroad program. And um, and it was quite a challenge. It was uh, early 90s in the beginning of the first multi-party election in, in the country. And, and, and the country was not at its best, uh, to say the least. And and it was quite a, uh, an emotional, physical, and, and intellectual challenge. Um, the university rioted. Uh, when I arrived, students rioted and they um, closed down the university, burned down the science center, and I was sort of forced to get a job, so to speak. Um, so I marched into the U.S. Peace Corps office and started what I thought was my journey on, on foreign service and, and had a wonderful experience there, um, not as an official volunteer, but as a volunteer allowed to do project finance, which at the time I had no clue what project finance was, but I was asked to help fund um, and and fundraise for Peace Corps volunteers that had finished their two-year stint and who wanted to come back and then uh, stay in country and, and reapply for programming funds. And and that's how I got started in finance and left uh, the program and, and left Cameroon, uh, marched back onto campus and, and said, I want to go work on Wall Street, um, to probably the chagrin of most of my advisors and professors. But um, And that's what I did. And from there, I, I went into the analyst program at Bankers Trust. So, wow, that's an impressive sort of transition, but it, it makes sense. And, and is there anything about that experience in Africa and that, that you'll bring back when we talk about philanthropy that you feel like has really kind of changed you uh, even today? Yeah. You know, it's probably less about philanthropy, but it's more about my own core values mm -hmm. and who, who I was then, uh, you know, as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old woman, and who I am now. Um, nothing has fundamentally changed in my desire to help change the world or, mm. or help be the change that, that, that I want to see. Um, but my path, I think, from that experience became much more practical and much more thoughtful in terms of how I would make that happen. And, and, and you know, becoming an actual philanthropist um, means you have to have the capital to be able to do so yeah. and, and the experience to be able to lend to an organization or a cause. And, and so I think that um, having left a, a fairly... Um, wide-eyed, slightly naive uh, woman marching off with a backpack to, to Cameroon thinking that I, I could change the world um, with my backpack and my flip-flops um, and coming back realizing that I needed a network, I needed uh, uh, people, and I needed capital and skills. And, and that was sort of how I hard-charged off. But I, I think that and, and the confidence that it, that it took to 
go on that experience. The risk that I took mm-hmm. um, certainly changed who I, I was as a person. I came back significantly more confident. And quite frankly, once you've accomplished living in a country in that capacity, um, when you'd never really been out of the country, um, everything else is pretty easy. So, yeah. so you know, Wall Street was a breeze after that. Well, it's interesting. It, it does lay an interesting sort of foundation for the rest of kind of your career because it sounds like there's an element of pragmatism towards an ideal mm-hmm. outcome. So let's maybe cover a little bit about what that transition to being an analyst at Wall Street was like. Mm-hmm. You know, there's obviously lots of movies that glorify it and there's <laughs> other movies that sort of you know, demonize it. What was it like for you and, and roughly kind of what years, just so people can contextualize yeah. the sort of the heyday or bust? Times? Sure. Yeah. So it was early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, uh, I would categorize it as a lot of structure um, and as a typical analyst program would be. Um, at the time, it was still a very, very early days for women on Wall Street. Um, I think people don't realize how recently the sort of 50-50 split or at least the attempt to come to a more um, diverse community in Wall Street existed. So, you know, New York in the early 90s, there were not that many women. And it was a, it was a, a, a dog-eat-dog world. You, you know, you had to work hard. Your hours were long. You had expectations placed upon you. And you were competing with some of the, the top of the top. So um, it was it was a tough time, intense time, but I loved the the intellectual curiosity that that I was around and to know that every day when you go to work, you know, you were working around people that, you know, had PhDs in certain subjects or, um, you know, had been around the world and and had experienced things that that I had in my life at that point never experienced. Um, So it was great environment. Um, I will say that that from the very beginning, I knew that I wasn't your typical Wall Street cog. Um, And I guess if, if I had to define that more formally. I would just, I didn't look like, I didn't sound like, I didn't probably think like most of the people that were in my analyst class or that I was competing with up the card. And and I think that helped me quite a bit. Um, I could have gone the path of trying to fit in and conform, uh, but I made the decision to be myself and to to carve out a specific area or a specific niche that that was unique to me. And, And I think it helped me get noticed. You mentioned one thing, which is carving out a niche, but maybe we can explore other attributes that you have seen be critical in having people rise to the top quickly. Mm-hmm. Because I think uh, for, for people, sometimes the, the work ethic seems to be the thing that people get hung up on. Like, I got to work hard, I can put the extra hours, I got to do that. And I think that there's a, a lot of stereotypes around just put in the hours, put in the effort, keep keep your head down mm-hmm. and, and you know things will happen. But have you noticed that there's other patterns to what drives uh, that growth, that exponential growth in terms of both roles within the structured program, like, you know, the analyst program, but to other areas? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a a good version and there's a bad version of what else you can do, right? So, So certainly my experience on Wall Street early days, work ethic mattered. People notice if you put in the effort. And at that time, effort did come in the form of a lot of FaceTime simply because there weren't a lot of mobile ways to not be part of the office. You weren't able to work outside of the, the office. You know, we're, we're still talking, believe it or not, fax machines and, and no emails. Um, so, so there was a certain element of having to physically be there mm-hmm. all hours to be able to actually get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of work. Um, I think that there are probably two paths to succeed in a quick manner in Wall Street. And, and the bad version, I think, is the political path. Um, I think a lot of smart people, and I think it's quite easy to figure out how do you game the system and how do you get ahead by doing this or saying that or being there and, you know, doing this. Um, and, you know, for some, it works. My sense, and maybe it's because I'm a 
I don't believe in karma, that, that eventually that will come around and, and hit you in the you know where. Um, but I, I, I chose a slightly different path, which was just true to being myself, which was, I, I, you know, sounds cliche, but it was out of the box thinking. I didn't go into Wall Street as a, um, you know, a, a finance student or even a, a hardcore economic student. I mean, my economic background was always in, in social economics and in, in, in macro trends, and it wasn't a, a business related, um, economics. And, and I think that, um, that helped quite a bit because I would ask different questions. I would have different answers. I would look at things a little bit differently. And I know it's why I was recruited in. I mean, the reality is why would you take somebody with no business background into an analyst training program at a global financial institution, unless you wanted them to think a little differently than everybody else they were recruiting from the top MBA mm-hmm. programs and top business programs. And and I, I don't know how much the financial institutions are doing that nowadays, but they were still doing it in the early 90s. And I think that that it was a really good thing. And, and, and if it isn't happening more now in the recruiting mm. world, I think it should, because I, I think it's, it's, it's easy to sort of narrowly focus on what you need, mm. but we all know in business, it doesn't just take uh, you know, a sort of certain amount of route education mm. to get ahead. That skyrocketed you to managing director at Cantor. Um, but maybe you can walk us through any kind of highlights from analyst to managing director. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that was for me where I first, invented in my mind this world of financial technology and and it certainly didn't exist in its current form as it does today um and and how we've we've created with anthemis a a business that focuses exclusively on that but it was around gosh probably about 96 97 and i had a ton of friends that were jumping ship from big banks going into the first dot-com boom and joining pets.com and stamps.com and the whole host of of others like them and i just i didn't have you know i didn't come from a a a family of considerable means i was self-made i was financing um not only my life but but that of my my indirect my family um i was putting my sister through college and and for me the idea of just jumping ship and giving up my regular paycheck just wasn't an option. So I decided to stick and said, I have to be able to find something more entrepreneurial inside of this institution. And so I started to kind of weave into different worlds where um, a lot of the trading businesses and the investment banking businesses were um, ignoring some of these new business models that were being powered by technology. Um, I was never a technologist, nor do I claim to be now. Half the time I can't even get my computer to boot up properly but um but the 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 concept that that businesses could be enabled um and and nowadays disrupted by the use of technology and and new ways of doing things um uh, was just becoming of the moment uh, mm-hmm. inside these banks and so i started to identify places where i could drive um whether it was you know bear stearns um business with um with market access or uh, the early days of their bloomberg products and the trade book products um through to kind of you know at the end of my career bear stearns or sorry at bankers trust working with um the team at alex brown and really figuring out kind of the it banking model and how important that was to the growth of their company mm-hmm. um and and there wasn't anybody else doing it so i sort of emerged very quickly as someone who um, had a thing and and it set me apart um, at a very young age and and so I was recruited uh, to join Canner to to help uh, launch their new online business and take it public. The way that you tell it it's very unclear as to whether or not it was engineered in the sense that you saw this opportunity and you went for it or whether it was kind of like it evolved and I think a lot of people sometimes find themselves in that position in life Mm -hmm. or with a business or anything it's like when is it I have this idea I think that there will be a thesis around tech enabling all these things. Let me pursue it, even if it ends up in a 
a wall of stone. Yeah. Um, for me, a lot of the big decisions and probably most of the small decisions in life have been in large part driven by instinct. Um, and so once I get the instinct to do something, to say something, to kind of work towards something, then I fill in the blanks. Mm. And once I fill in the blanks, I've usually figured I've made the right call or the wrong call. And, you know, mm. sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. But my instinct has never really led me down the wrong path mm. um, because you can learn from everything. Um, so I think that it was less of an evolution. Um, it was probably more opportunistic. Uh, it was a bit of a risk because I was identifying an area that, quite frankly, was not that sexy. Mm -hmm. And for most folks who would have, you know, built their life to be an M&A banker for the rest of their existence was not that interesting. Um, but to me, I, I couldn't imagine sitting in a, in a, you know, in a, on a trading floor for the rest of my career or, or, you know, in one deal for the next yeah. 17 months. So, so it made a lot of sense, but it was a risk. Mm. So if, if we go to that latter part of the time frame when you were at Cantor. I know that that's, that coincided, unfortunately, with the events of 9-11. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, from what I understand, you were already a managing director. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through kind of the, the challenges of being a leader in those kinds of moments of crisis? You know, it's a very unique period during the history of the United States. And, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, lost mm -hmm. staff during that period. But also in terms of like uh, the impact to mm -hmm. the organization, the motivation, and then how, how to recover from that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably always knew this beforehand, but it was made very clear to me in the in the days and weeks after September 11th is that when the human psyche is impacted in some way by trauma or tragedy or major shock, um, and 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 September 11th being a massive example of that, right? And it probably happens quite a bit on a much smaller scale as well. Your natural instinct is to go to your comfort space, right? That place where you feel safe. And for so many of us at Cantor, because we were so personally impacted by the events of that day, our natural safe space was to go back to work. And I think there was a lot of less criticism and more just questions. How do you do that? And, and I think that, you know, Many years later, I can still say, you lose 658 colleagues, you just go where you're going to survive. And and that for us was where we were going to survive, is putting it back together, going back to work. And, and for everybody, that meant something a little bit different. You know, I excelled in one area and somebody else excelled in the other area, and people were putting their hands and taking up jobs. So I think at any point, crisis generally leads to people, you know, to, to go where they're naturally comfortable. And I think what ends up happening when you think about leadership or management in crisis after that is that, that, look, there's no roadmap for this. But if everybody's naturally going to a place that they're comfortable, then things will get done. Mm -hmm. And and How do you, how do you align heal. that? I mean, to some extent, obviously, this is very unfortunate circumstances. But if we take the, the nature of, let's say, a company being in distress mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and where people are aware of the state of distress that that company might be in, but they're not necessarily aligned mm -hmm. into what that comfort zone might be. Yeah. For the techie, it might be build more product. For the financier, it might be do more financier type right. stuff, which may not necessarily be what's needed. Mm -hmm. How do you coalesce that as a leader? Yeah, well, that's an, that's that's the true sort of kernel of leadership right there, right, is if you can figure out how to get to that. Uh, for me, it's always been, and, and I think that the world would be a better place if we all sort of appreciated this, it's as simple as communication. Um, people who are nervous, scared, um, turned off, in any way feeling negative about a situation, 
need to know what's happening. And yeah, sometimes they don't need to know all the information, but there aren't very many situations where outlining that we're nervous, that we're scared, that we're frightened, um, and outlining the concerns and addressing them straight on, um, and then attempting to put together some sort of a verbal path forward. Um, it, it can't be wrong. You know, you, you, people, people thrive in, in, in that environment where they know where they're going. And it's simple enough in some cases, depending on the situation where if they have the information, it will help them focus where focus their energies in something much more positive. And, and I think that's incredibly important in, in terms of crisis and, and leadership in that sense. Hmm. So moving on from Cantor onto your transition to Barclays and then from Barclays Capital to Barclays Stockbrokers, where mm-hmm. you were CEO. Maybe you could just walk us through how that transition happened and what were the key highlights during that, that mm-hmm. time for you? Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, it's another example of sort of standing out for being a little bit different. Um, I was recruited to both of those positions um, and, and, and probably both of them shocked me a bit. You know, when I got the phone call, it was a, what, how, why would you think I would be interested in this or why would you think I'd be good at this? Um, and, and I think, um, you know, going going from Cantor and going from such a, a emotionally charged time that didn't have a lot to do with the business, right? So it was sort of a very different moment for me because I was able to jump into Barclays and leave a lot of the emotional stuff behind me. So that that actually um, was a was a pretty interesting moment, right? Because it became all about actual business at that point. Um, I think you'd asked another question about Cantor. One of the things that always sort of Made, stuck out in my mind post September 11th was that it does matter who you work with and who you choose to spend your time with. And so from every moment um, that that I've been in employment or starting my own companies, I've made a very conscious effort to sort of make sure that I'm working around people that I can respect, people that I can appreciate, and people that I can learn something from. Um, and so that period of time uh, at Barclays actually was a, was a great learning experience for me because I, I, you know, I was able to, to, to identify and, and find people who were not like me in any yeah. way, shape or form. Um, but that I knew I could gain significant amount of, of, of leadership skills, um, and, and business skills from. Um, and so I, I used that period of time to really hone my, um, my, my real senior, leadership skills, particularly around the idea of running a company. Yeah, which is which is interesting because one of the things that happens when you transition to running a fund is that you're effectively married with a partner. <laughs> That's you right. Know, Rush and I run Seacamp and, you know, we've been working now for six years and, and the, you don't have this ability to quickly move to like a different area where you're working with different people to yeah. learn new things. Yeah. So it's interesting that your next transition was exactly to becoming a founder mm-hmm. along with Sean Park mm-hmm. at, at Anthemis. Maybe an interesting decision point for you is when you go from this sort of very highly stimulating environment, moving jobs, being CEO of the Wall Street world to now founder of a new initiative. Right. You can walk us through. Putting the the printer cartridge in the, uh, the cartridge in the the printer. Uh, Yeah. I mean, Sean and I met, met in our various different positions on, in Wall Street and, and we knew of each other. He actually even today reminded me that I was his, uh, his, his, his Newman to Seinfeld, right? His nemesis. Um, he and I had, had similar roles at, at competing organizations. And he always was, um, was one of those guys that, that we knew industry wise that probably had some of the best ideas as early as possible in the space of, of kind of using technology to drive Wall Street. And, and I was known as the person that could execute their way out of a paper bag. Um, and so Sean would always wonder how his brilliant ideas, 
that couldn't go where they needed to go inside of, you know, his organization would all of a sudden find themselves being executed in my organizations. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, you know, got to listen to somebody here. So, mm-hmm. so, but, um, so when we met and decided to, to kind of imagine working together, um, it was a pretty natural relationship. And I think that's important. I, I think, you know, we, we say this all the time to, to, um, entrepreneurs, particularly those who are looking to couple with someone and perhaps haven't found their co-founder or weren't sure they wanted a co-founder. It, it, it has to be somewhat organic. It, it can't be a forced relationship. I mean, in the same way you wouldn't get married or live with somebody for the rest of your existence without really understanding who they are, what makes mm-hmm. them tick. But sometimes it's, it's hard to put your finger on it. You just have to feel it. Um, and with Sean, it was fairly instantaneous. So we were able to, to come together pretty quickly. And, and to be honest, I hadn't necessarily planned on quitting my job when I did. Um, but I got into a point, uh, in my career that I had done all the things that I'd set out to do mm. from a corporate perspective. Um, and quite frankly, it had gotten a little lonely. It was, it was not as great as everybody made it seem like it was to sort of be on top. Mm. Um, and I was bored. I was really bored. And and I had a young family and, and thought, you know, if I'm going to have to choose between being um, away from my kids at any point in my life, I'm, I certainly better be doing it with something that I'm passionate about. Mm. Um, and so I, I made a very um, fairly aggressive decision one day and, and went in and resigned. Uh, and then, uh, called Sean and told him I had and asked him if he wanted me to uh, help, uh, you know, organize that maybe he could take my job. And he said, Nope, meet me tomorrow. We're going to find out what we're going to do together. So, and that's how it started. I I want you to to help the audience understand what Anthemis is about and what it achieves. But maybe before you do that, you can share a little bit of sort of the learnings that you have from working with him as a co-founder, if Mm -hmm. you will, because it's different when you're a CEO. To mm-hmm. some extent, yes, there is the board who's above you and can set guidance up to a certain mm-hmm. point. But then there's everybody who's below you. And in some way, there's no peer. Mm-hmm. There's no equal peer. There's no that sort of tension that can mm-hmm. happen between two people who have peerage authority. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can share with us a little bit about maybe uh, the dynamics that you and Sean have that are dynamics that sometimes you use when you're giving examples to founders about how yeah. to manage those dynamics. Yeah. So Sean and I, um, just to give you some, some background. So Anthemis is a is a venture capital and advisory business that it specializes exclusively in financial services technology. And when we began Anthemis, um, we began just the investment piece of the, the pie. And, and Sean and I came together with this very straightforward thesis that the markets were about to significantly change and that more and more financial services companies were going to be using, leveraging, and needing technology in order to, to be competitive. And I think the thing that bonded us very early on and probably made it easier us for us to consider each other peers is that, as I said before, I was one of the few people who had identified financial technology as way back as 1997. And Sean was also one of those people. And so in a strange way, we'd already had, even when we didn't know each other, a shared experience um, that brought us to 2008. in large part because we were the crazy people, right? We were the ones that were walking around these big financial institutions telling everybody their margins were going to zero and that their businesses were going to be obsolete if they didn't pay attention and people were shutting their doors on us. You know, there's that element really helped bond us. Mm. And when we left to start Anthemis, it was right about the time when people started to pay attention and they started to look and think, wait, maybe these people aren't so crazy. Perhaps yeah. we should, um, you know, and listen to them. And and I, I think that, that what fundamentally... Um, gelled and worked for us was that we were incredibly complementary skill sets. You know, he is big thinker, 
ideas um, and and prescient in his views of the marketplace. Uh, and I am an executor and a strategist and a doer. And I think those two things combined made us made us the perfect team. Mm. Um, and I think you know one of the things we'll always talk to our entrepreneurs about is is being self aware. And it's just as important to know what you're not good at as to know what you are good at. And I think when you're fundraising and you're going out and you're looking for people to back you and invest in your company, you feel the need to sort of stand up sometimes with a lot of bravado and talk about all your strengths and how you're so fantastic. And particularly if you get really good at it, you become like an Uber marketer and can see no wrong. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you have to ask yourself as an investor, well, if this company's so perfect, this perfect person's so perfect, why are they sitting in front of me? They should have already been funded 15 years ago. And, um, and I think being self-aware enough to sort of identify where you're not quite whole, um, that's where you find the right partners. Now it's been obviously almost coming up on 10 years. I mean, it'll be a couple of years to, to the decade. But what is the, the current state of Anthem? Is how many people? Mm-hmm. What, what is kind of the success stories? Maybe a little time to show off a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. So we um, we are uh, 40 people worldwide now. We opened in January our New York City office. Um, we're London-based. Uh, sorry, we're a Luxembourg company, London-based um, headquarters. And um, we have a, a great group of mostly ex-financial services professionals who have uh, come to the team with a goal of, of essentially transforming and helping evolve the current financial services landscape. Um, we uh, have a, a, a about 35 companies on our balance sheet portfolio, um, six, sort of various different forms of growth. Uh, we're, we're getting very quickly known for inventing categories. Um, so whether it was, um, you know, inventing insure tech before insure tech existed mm-hmm. by our investment in climate corp or, uh, inventing, uh, the challenger bank category with our investment in simple, uh, inventing robo advising with our first money in investment in betterment. Um, and now even, uh, in the, in the blockchain space, while everybody was going into Bitcoin, we were very specifically going into the underlying technology behind it, the blockchain space. So we've, we've, gotten ourselves a pretty good reputation for being able to spot these trends well before their trends. Um, and we're now moving our focus on our next batch of investments. Um, we're just finishing up a round of fundraising and, uh, our next batch will be similar in nature, similar in scope, but, but we'll take it to the next level to some degree. Um, and, and maybe be in some cases a little bit less sexy than some of the user interfaces and the, um, and the, the user experience businesses that we've backed in the past. Um, but certainly no less lucrative and, and significantly, uh, more impactful in the industry we think. Hmm. Well, it sounds to me like you, you've done an amazing job, obviously with achieving pretty much everything there is to achieve in Wall Street. <laughs> and then as an entrepreneur and an investor, and then there's the world where we went full circle and we're back to philanthropy. <laughs> and I know that you have um, both a, a company that you started that has to do with media, and we can talk about that in a mm-hmm. second, but I think something that probably is a little bit more closer to your heart is the Bubble Foundation. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can share us a little bit of the elements that you bring from those early days back in Cameroon to, to what created the foundation for, mm-hmm. the, for the Bubble Foundation mm-hmm. and and standing up for where no one else will. Yeah. Yeah, I think both um, Archer Gray, my media company, and Bubble were were passion projects to, to speak. And, and, and I say that a bit loosely because, to be honest, everything I'm doing in life right now is a passion, passion project. And, and having spent the majority of my career in Wall Street, 
being very passionate about what I was doing, but not really having passion for it, um, I can say, uh, hand on heart that, that this way is much better. Um, and I've always sort of felt that, that, um, whether you're incubating a company, whether you're starting a charity, whether you're, um, working with a filmmaker on, on their, their pet project to turn into a film or a TV show, it's incredibly important to have that passion, um, and to have it be a guiding force for you because at any given moment in any of those projects, you could be the only one with any passion for it. And if you're not able to stand up for this project, this business, this, this charity on your own, it's not going to exist. Um, and so, you know, we, we often say at our degrees, you got to love it when no one else does. And, um, and, and that I think has been the, 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 Binding thread through sort of everything that I've done, um, and and certainly when it comes to um, the philanthropic piece, uh, it, it, you know it's it's hard work. It is absolutely the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah, it's a different form of startup, if you will. But maybe walk us through kind of what what it does mm-hmm. and what what the aims are, and sort of in some ways tying it all together. Sure. Yeah. So Bubble um, was an organization that I started. Uh, with a friend in uh, 2010, and we started it just before Michelle Obama launched her Let's Move program. Um, it was quite simply a grassroots program where we provide free of charge to the um, school systems in New York City, hardest hit communities, um, underserved in, in many ways, free wellness and fitness nutrition programming um, for two years and work with the school to create scalable and sustainable programs for them for the future and beyond. And, and it was started in large part, um, as a mother who, who was watching my children, um, entering the school system and having, um, realizing how much school impacted on their choices of what they ate, why they ate, when they ate, what they moved, when they moved, how they moved, what they did, and recognizing that in some of these underserved communities, that was never going to happen. Um, I had historically been on boards. I'd served as board chair at Make-A-Wish International and, and had a lot of philanthropic management experience. But this was something different. This was me showing my kids that if you had an idea and you wanted to make a change, you wanted to do something, that you had to get your hands dirty and do it. And I think that was really important because as an entrepreneur, as a venture capitalist, it's sometimes harder for your kids to understand what it is you're doing. You know, they don't know. Mom goes to work and what does she do all day? But this was something they could get their hands around. And so we as a family came up with this idea and thought, let's get in there and, and see if we can make a difference. And and we have. It's been fantastic. We've been um we've graduated fifteen schools across the um five boroughs and um we've reached north of ten thousand students, families and, and educators and, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. I mean it begs the question to some extent of whether or not the next stage after philanthropy is is politics. <laughs> you know, it seems to me like there's an element of sort of wealth creation, an element of, of, of creating jobs and creating careers and then giving back to community, mm-hmm. but that some of the elementals of what the Bubble Foundation is doing can also be solved with policy. And mm-hmm. I guess, you know, if you were to lay the groundwork, maybe I'm asking you something, it's about your goals for the next <laughs> 10 years. It's like, is there is there is that the next logical step? is some sort of political uh, influence towards how economies function and, and represent some of the values you have. Yeah, for me, for me personally, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I don't, I, I, I highly doubt it um, for a whole host of reasons. But I, I think that, um, you know, for sure, the woman that went to Cameroon to change the world with the backpack has not disappeared. 
Um, and I think that what I've done, whether it's been intentional or organic, is created a network, um, a, 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 a sense of expertise, um, and, and certainly the, the capital resource, access to the capital resources to be able to do something very big. And, you know, I think it remains to be seen. I, I think I'm doing it in some degrees on various different levels. Um, I think the world is very different now than it was 25 years ago, uh, 30, yeah, almost 30 years ago now. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, if you were to sort of try to figure out how all these various different things that I've got going on come together, you know, there's, there's a very media is incredibly important in our world today Mm -hmm. and, and wanting to, to learn the business of content through Archer Gray, make films, um, participate in important documentaries, um, uh, put things on television that, that, feel important for people to see, um, that, that will make a statement, um, combined with the fact that a big part of the evolution in financial services community isn't just about making money. Mm. It's about equality. It's about transparency. It's about access. Um, so wouldn't surprise me that, that my anthemist world wouldn't somehow, uh, lead to, to, to some really big, amazing change making things Mm. as well. So one of the things that you mentioned was sort of the nature of finance and, and how that's evolving and transparency and access. There's a new one I want to introduce and I want to get your thoughts on, which is ecology. There was a mm. great article that came out recently, how economic systems currently decoupled from the ecology, mm-hmm. where growth is completely uh, promoted at the cost of you know, our natural resources. Mm-hmm. And you know, you've been exposed to sort of uh, innovative financial mechanisms and uh, all sorts of different structures for how risk can be uh, compensated and mm-hmm. not only uh, collateralized, but also uh, sold as, as uh, a fund mm-hmm. for the purposes of investing. What innovation do you think is available in the, in the financial world to incorporate the, the one thing that we cannot renew, which is, is our ecology? Mm. That's a great question um, and probably one that, that rates a lot longer than a, than a two-second answer. Um, I, I think that there are some things happening already in, in I would say in the, what would be considered the financial services technology space, um, whether it's around, um, solar energy, um, creating marketplaces for solar, solar energy and, 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 and energy in general. Um, I've always thought that, that as an, you know, an economist minded person, marketplace dynamics will play an incredibly important role in, in that space going forward. And I think that has a lot to do with, with, with how it plays out in financial services as well, because those will be the places where the markets get built, where they get run, where they get exchanged. But to your point, it's about making sure that the businesses and the structures are set up in a way that actually is built for good and not for evil, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you'll see a lot more there. Um, I think in the areas in the developing communities where it still is a necessity um, access is not a guarantee. Uh, technology, to some degree, um, is in a different space and a different age than, than it is in other places. I think you're going to see a lot of that as well. Um, and there are a lot of wonderful investors, including our, our friends at Apis Partners, who are doing um, some great stuff in in um, in uh, the emerging markets around uh, creating uh, businesses and, and models around financial services and and environmental equality. Excellent. Well. We want to end with the four fun questions. So the first one is, what is the one thing you wish you were more of an expert on right now? Ooh, mind reading. 
Mind reading. Yeah, mind reading. Um, so that means that you're already doing it. I am. You're yes. You're just not an expert at it. At all times. I, you know, I, it's partly that sort of intuition instinct piece of me, but I, I think if I could truly read people's mind, it might, I might get a lot more done in a day. Um, but weirded out. Good for you, but that'd be a good one. <laughs> Probably a good one. All right. Excellent. I want that one too. If you could be guaranteed one thing in life besides money, what would it be? That the, that the world that I leave my children allows them to fulfill their full potential, bring them as much happiness as I've had in my life. Um, and then hopefully give the same to their children. What's something you used to strongly believe that you now think you were fundamentally misguided about? <laughs> it's like the humility question yeah. I guess, in some ways. Probably that if you just say it loud enough and often enough, it will happen. Um, I think in my, my journey as a, a manager and a leader, I've, I've learned that you have to bring people along with you um, and that not everybody thinks, acts, behaves, um, and exists on the same level as you do. And maybe at the, and by level, I mean speed, yeah. um, and, and how important it is to stop for a minute, listen to others and, and respect, um, what they bring to the table. Um, and, and certainly, you know, if we're not learning mm. always, then, then what's the point? Lastly, what book influenced your thinking greatly more than others? I would have to say most definitely Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And the thing about this book, if you haven't read it, you should pick it up immediately. It is an absolute classic. It's one of the few books that you can read now. It's written, I think, in 70, maybe 69, somewhere around that, that time. And you almost forget at every turn that it was written in 1970. There's enough there that's so relevant today. And I have a habit of reading it every 10 years. And so it's a little bit fresh in my mind because I've just read it. But I read it for the first time at 16, read it again in my mid-20s, my mid-30s, and, and just read it uh, recently. And every time I read it, there's something new that I learned from it because of where I am in my space. And it's almost as if, talk about mind reading, mm -hmm. he's in my head. He's just forward looking. Anything you want to share specifically? Oh, gosh. Um... No, but I, no, read it, read it. Read if you it. haven't read it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's got some great, great moments around technology in there too. That mm -hmm. you sort of, um, when you read it, when I read it, when I was 16, I read it a while ago. you know, gonna, referred to my Atari apparently, but, uh, but, but yeah, it's pretty amazing how, really how these messages hold up. Yeah. I need to read it. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, Amy. Yeah. Thank it's you for having me. Carlos. And uh, until next time guys. Bye. Bye.